The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debates. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today my guest on Off the Shelf is Brian Friel. Brian is a co-founder of BD Squared LLC, a big... um, analyst, I guess, uh, analyst organization in the federal market, focusing on lots of different contract vehicles and just the way the markets uh, provides advice to to members. But I, I'm getting into what you do, Brian. First of all, thanks. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Roger. It's great to be here. And yeah, I, st- I started to describe what you did when I should just turn it over to you. So, you know, what what is BD Squared in terms of what do you do and, you know, what's your role in the federal market? Yeah, so BD Squared, the name comes from the uh, my background, the background of my partner, Stephanie Mitchell. She comes from a business development background, and I come from a big data background. So, But BD Squared is business development powered by big data. And our predominant focus is on major contract vehicles. Uh, we help companies get on those vehicles, and then we help companies win task orders on those vehicles. And that's our dominant focus for the company. So you do the data analysis piece of it? Yeah, exactly. There, when uh, And I, I, I'll get into my background, uh, I think, in a minute, but I was at yeah, sure. Bloomberg Government for a number of years and helped build out the analytical tools that, um, uh, that are used in that service. And uh, through that process, I really got um, a very good um, understanding of how to use that data to make uh, better business decisions. And um, when I was at Bloomberg, a lot of companies would come to me and say, um, you know, I like your work. I think it's interesting, but could you customize it for me? Could you help me figure out what to bid? Could you advise me on who to team with? Could you help me prepare uh, bids? And, you know, Bloomberg doesn't do that kind of thing because it's a media company. So I sensed in the market that there was an opportunity for a company, and that's why I left, and that's why we found a BD Squared. And how long has the company been around? Uh, we've been around for about five years now. I like to think of Alliant 2 as uh, kind of a big starting point for us. That was back in uh, 2016, where we helped companies get on that contract vehicle, and that was the first major um, scorecard procurement after GSA's Oasis uh, a few years earlier. And once uh, GSA had done it on the Lion, the, that approach took off and, uh, and we've been supporting companies getting onto major vehicles using scorecards ever since. Yeah, the scorecard, I think that it, it seems to me the scorecard approach probably lends itself to the type of analysis you do. And in that regard, I don't want you to give away your secret sauce, but can you talk a little bit about in terms of the data, what what kind of things that you know companies look at or appreciate um, when they're looking at the market and look looking at cont- or contemplating a specific procurement? Yeah, and uh, I think I, I'll just kind of describe scorecards briefly because I think it, it kind of lends itself to that, which is that in a scorecard procurement, um, you're being everything about your company is being reduced to a single number, 
And if your number is high enough, you win. And if your number is not high enough, you lose. And the attributes of your company, such as do you have a DCA audited accounting system that generates points and that gets added to your total? Another thing is, do you have a contract that's over $275 million in total value that's at the Defense Department that has uh, that is a, a task order on a multi-board IDIQ that is cost plus rather than fixed fee and that has OCONUS work? And all those elements contribute to a, a score for that contract, which then adds to your total as a company. And in my analysis, I use data to help figure out how much is it? How much? How many points is a company worth? So you know, how many points are they going to to bring in? And then, uh, kind of importantly, how does that compare to all the other companies that are likely to bid? Uh, so I use a kind of a big data approach to assess the market. Say, uh, out of everybody that's going to bid, these are the companies that I think will get the highest score. Their their score is higher than everybody else's, and therefore they're most likely to win. And then uh, work with a company and say, are you one of those companies? And if so, this is how you get that score. And if they're not, then are there ways for us to improve your score to get you into the to the winning range? And so right. it really lends itself to the big data approach that have, that we've put together. Yeah, and then and I guess improving scores involving identifying teaming, potential teaming partners and things like that. Yeah, exactly. And that's the particularly on the small business side, the federal uh, acquisition rules uh, require that agencies permit teaming. It's uh, more restri- it's 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 more restrictive on the large large business side. So it kind of depends on the procurement. Some of them don't allow teaming for large businesses; others do. But where there is teaming, you I might put together your score and realize you have a gap. The government's asking for um, a set of points that you don't have in your portfolio, and you can't get it in the time frame that remains. So I can use teaming to say, well, I had this other company that doesn't have the points you have, but they have the points you're missing. And so we could put you together on a team, put together a higher overall score for the offer, which then puts you in the winning uh, circle. And then uh, so off you go to, to bid. Right. And then, you know, the evaluation methodology or the scorecard basically provides the formula you use, right? And then you're using publicly available information to figure out company scores. Exactly. That's right. Because the, the federal procurement data system, there's a lot of negative things one can say about it. It is the, the most comprehensive data set available about the federal contracting business. And arguably, if you look at across industry, it's the best source of data about any industry that's out there. Uh, I think if I tried to do this work for, State and local governments, for example, I don't know that I could do it because I don't right. have a comparable data source. Same in the commercial market. But in the federal market, I can pull together that data and uh, and then analyze it and say, okay, this is what this is what you can bring. So kind of a funny thing is a lot of times uh, when, when I start working with a company, I actually tell them not to tell me anything. So like I don't issue them a data call. I just say, I'm going to tell you what I think your score is and what builds into that score. And particularly for large companies that can be valuable because uh, a large company may have many different operating subsidiaries and it's kind of hard to keep track of everything that everybody's doing. So me kind of taking this universal approach helps hone in on the contracts that are going to get them the highest score. Yeah. It sounds like that would be helpful to the company just generally anyway, you know, 
uh, whether they're competing or not, just understanding, you just made the point, like, you know, tracking, you know, your related business units and things like that. And just understanding where you are in terms of, you know, how you're tailored to meet federal requirements. That, that probably sounds like it'd probably be helpful regardless of whether you're competing or not in some cases. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 and even, even smaller companies that don't have a lot of contracts, sometimes they're just, they, they've never looked at the data from the perspective I look at it from. So they, they may even say, oh, I didn't know I had that contract or I didn't know the contract was structured in that way that would get me more points. And, but then on the flip side, the more complex the corporate structure, the more beneficial this can be. Like we work with a lot of like Alaska native uh, corporations and native wines that have extremely complex corporate structures with a lot mm-hmm. of different areas. And it's helpful for them to have someone like me come in and say, okay, here's out of all of this big universe of contracts that you can use. These are the ones that are going to get you the best score. You know, Brian, you don't mess around. We got right into the nitty gritty of things. I didn't get to <laughs> talk to you in this segment about some of your background and you know, how you came to government contracts and that sort of stuff. So I think what we'll do is for the next segment, we will, um, we will do some of that discussion initially to start out um, the segment and then kind of turn to some of the big picture trends you've seen over your years of you know, working in government contracts and just where we are now before we dive into some of the more specific procurements. So, um, and we are up at the break. So when we come back, we'll talk a bit more about your background and then get into the big picture. My guest today is Brian Friel. He's a co-founder of BD Squared LLC. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Brian Friel. He is the co-founder of BD Squared LLC. And I want to get back to your, you know, your journey in, uh, you know, in, in coming to creating BD Squared and the service you provide. Uh, to your clients. Um, There's a great explanation in the last segment about what you do and how you do it and um, and the value that's provided. But I think it's important to to sort of, you know, share your experience, your journey to to create and be D squared um, and how you got into government contracts. Yeah, definitely. And it it goes back, actually, uh, I I kind of view my entry into the overall market uh, as starting in 1996. And I was a student at American University and a internship opportunity uh, presented itself. One of my uh, professors uh, was working at a magazine called Government Executive and uh, doing some freelance for them. And she said, hey, there's this internship to help create a website for the company. So this is back before, obviously, organizations even had websites. So I was hired that summer and helped build out the Government Executive website. I was uh, studying uh, journalism at the time. So I ended up transitioning into being a reporter for GovExec, also continued to help run the website. Uh, From there, spent about um, eight years really getting to know the federal government through the perspective of of Government Executive, which is uh, was a magazine, now is an online uh, site for um, senior executives and uh, upper level management throughout the government. And that really gave me a very good understanding of how the government overall operates. Uh, But I also wanted to understand kind of where the money comes from. And so uh, after uh, a number of years at government executive, I went to National Journal, which is a sister company or was a sister company of government executive and covered Congress for a number of years. And so I I covered 
um, leadership issues, immigration, transportation, um, really got to know the appropriations process pretty well, did a stint at uh, Congressional Quarterly covering leadership, and then ultimately ended up at Bloomberg, which I mentioned in the last segment, as uh, kind of my final foray before launching the company. So that's interesting. And from what you described, you uh, you probably crunched some numbers when you were looking at the appropriations process, but was Bloomberg where you sort of transitioned from journalist to big data guru? Yeah, I was I was actually hired by Bloomberg as a, as a reporter. And then a few months in, uh, they came to me and they said, hey, you're going to be an analyst now. And I said, I don't know what that is. <laughs> but right. it turns out it's basically... It's a lot like reporting. Uh, it's just you you are doing a lot more data analysis and kind of producing your own um, interpretation. I had covered government contracting pretty substantially at government executive. So I was very familiar with federal acquisition regulations and GovExec used to publish a top 200 government contractors every year. And yeah, I, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. Yep, wrote articles for that. So I think but I think it was really at Bloomberg where I ended up really honing in on government contracting. Um, I think the overall lesson I got that I think I still apply from my years as a journalist is that um, that the RFP is is the last step in the process and that there are many steps before that. And one of the, my favorite sayings that I share with my clients is that policy drives procurement. So at the, at the very beginning stage, when Congress is looking at appropriations um, or creating a program, they are trying to solve some problem facing the country. And ultimately, that winds its way down into the contracts process where contractors help implement the solutions to the to those problems. So I always say, you know, if you want to kind of get fully ahead of requirements, start at the policy level and see what what is what does the government view as the problems that the uh, agencies that you might want to work with are trying to solve. Right. Yeah. If that's so interesting to your journey. And so then you decided to create you saw that demand you described in the segment about people wanting customized sort of reports and that sort of thing, which, and just understanding where they are in the market, uh, which Bloomberg doesn't do, but, but you saw an opportunity there. So what, you know, it's a, it's a courageous thing to go out and start your own business. And it's, you know, it's fundamental. It's a, you know, it's, it's a great thing um, to do. And I just, you know, quickly talk about, you know, what you learned from doing it, what were some of the challenges and, um, and just what your initial experience was to quote to a startup. Yeah. And it was, it's, it's been really fan, a, a fantastic journey for me because I don't, I don't have an MBA. I've, I've never studied business. So I've really learned it as I've gone. My, my partner, Stephanie Mitchell is, is a great businesswoman, So I've also learned a lot from her, but, um, some things we, I think we've kind of, um, taken on and, and as philosophies that have helped guide the business is, one we only uh, we only have hired when we can uh, afford it, so mm-hmm. we've we've never uh, we've never taken any debt, and uh, and I think that's an important thing because then we are in full control of the company. But as we've brought people on, it's because we have enough demand to support the, that hiring, and we're now at um, nine employees, including me and uh, Stephanie. And um, yeah, congratulations! Yeah, thanks a lot. And I think that so that so and we've really grown the business through demand signals. So, you know, I'll, I'll do a, I did a, I would do a report for somebody and they would say, oh, well, can you do also do this report? And can you do this analysis? And ultimately what we've done is built a business that 
uh, is just very responsive to what our customers need. So like we help companies get on these contracts. And then we found out that small businesses in particular had challenges trying to win task orders. So we built the, we have the, side of our business that helps companies get on the big contracts but then we have a second side of our business that helps companies win more task orders by and again it's big data driven by analyzing what are the opportunities that are going to come out on the vehicles who are the incumbents who could potential teaming partners be and analyze that data to help companies make better use of their time so that they um, uh, spend their time bidding on opportunities that they can win ignoring opportunities that they can't win and putting together the right teams uh, to get those uh, to get a win. And again, all of that is kind of lessons of the business process for me of, of, of listening to the customers to understand what they want and how our particular expertise can help them get what they want. Yeah. And I, and I guess you probably learned a lot of lessons too, about some of the, you know, the, the boiler room stuff about that companies have to think about when they're just even just the, the just the basics on setting it up. Right. I mean, that's, stuff I, I learned when I left government um, and learned when I came to the coalition as well, just generally the underlying mechanics of operating a business. Um, I'm sure that was uh, educational as well. Yeah, no, definitely. And, you know, like one, like one kind of big question from a business model perspective is uh, like, how do you charge your clients? And initially when I started, <laughs> I was charging by the hour. But what I, I realized was one that's it's it's very time consuming to actually track all of that, and also to tricky to set the the rates. Um, but at the end of the day, if you can uh, figure out what the customer wants and what is a reasonable price to pay, then you can move to a fixed price model. So like everything we do is is fixed price. Uh, it helps the customer kind of manage their expectations and know what they're going to have to pay, and it also helps uh, us be as efficient as we possibly can to give our clients what they need uh, in the, yeah. the most effective way possible. Yeah. yeah. It makes a lot of sense. We got about a minute and a half left and you know, that was, a, I wanted to get to just the big picture trends. So you've been the BD squared has been around since 2016 before that you were Bloomberg doing federal market and over your, and even before that you were, you were dabbled in it. Um, whether it was a, a gov exec or a national journal, just, what are some of the biggest sort of trends or changes in the market you've seen over the last, let's say, ten dust decade, decade and a half? Yeah, I think that from the from the government's perspective, um, I think the one obviously one of the big trends, again, thinking from a policy driving procurement perspective, is that the government uh, uh, is spending a lot of money. <laughs> like the the market has grown substantially over the even just the time period we've been operating, but even if you step back really a lot of growth and the so the so the country is kind of expecting more of the government but the government itself is not growing so in order because uh you know they're kind of it's tricky to hire ftes and stuff so the natural place for that growth to occur is in the contracting space so i think the biggest trend i see is that there's been a tremendous amount of growth in the market I, i i i have a feeling we're probably getting close to the end of that growth and we may see a retrenchment um, because of the um, new um, dynamic between a, a divided government for the first time, where where uh, you know House Republicans are particularly focused on the idea of spending, um, and so we may now be ending that kind of trend that we've seen for a long time 
and moving into a period where there will be much more focus on doing the all the many things that the government's expected to do more efficiently than it has been done in the past. So, and you know what, that's a great segue to the next segment where I will, I'm going to, I am definitely going to ask you about, again, some of the trends that sort of bleed off that idea that spending has increased in the procurement space to provide and support missions as missions have expanded, but the government workforce has not to fill that gap. Um, and just looking at some of the other trends within that context uh, in terms of executing and what those look like. And then we can definitely start talking about some of the specific contract vehicles. This is, I think 2023 is the uh, year of the IDIQ in the end the, year of the GWAC. And we'll talk more about that during the rest of the segments. Uh, my guest today is Brian Friel. He is the co-founder of BD Squared LLC. I'm Roger Waldron. You're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Walder. My guest today is Brian Friel. He is a co-founder of BD Squared LLC. Um, and Brian, when we took the break, um, yeah, we started a discussion of some of the key trends um, that you've seen over your, your career in government procurement and just generally. And you got to the heart of the matter. But the biggest trend is that there is more, there's more money being spent definitely over the last decade and a half. Um, in procurement to support agency missions. And within that context, going the next sort of level down, what are some of the key trends and changes you've seen over the last, again, decade and a half, the last few years as even more changes with regard to the execution that, to obligate that money to actually implement and award contracts? To me, the the most consequential trend in that regard is the growth of multiple board IDIQs and major contract vehicles as a mechanism for the delivery of contracted services. And you can trace a lot of that back to the 90s where there was the Clinger Cohen Act and the Federal Acquisition Streamlining Act that encouraged uh, a move to that, that, that kind of environment. But then on top of that, from the Bush administration forward through Obama, through Trump, into Biden, there's been a top level interest in reducing the number of uh, what what might be called redundant contracts. That there are there were uh, th- there was a view that there were too many contracts doing the same thing, and so there was a push across by the top level of the administration, uh, again multiple administrations, to uh, drive work to centralized vehicles. It was ultimately kind of have become called best in class vehicles. And so we look at, at the major IT services contracts uh, like Alliant and CISB3, the professional services contracts like Oasis, but even within agencies, uh, a lot of uh, consolidation of requirements onto contracts like Seaport at the Navy, um, ITES at the Army, T4NG at the VA. So there's a, a consolidation of requirements in the services market into these central vehicles. And that therefore makes these vehicles extremely important to companies in the market because they feel like if they're not on the vehicles, they won't have access to much of the money that's being spent. Right. And I mean, there you think logically that, um, you know, if you slice the data, probably bid protests on those bigger vehicles have increased, whereas overall protests, I think, have actually decreased. Is that a fair sort of view of that issue? Yeah, because the the at the IDIQ level, when the government is making awards for these contracts, they often have uh, you know a ten year period of performance, 
And so if you don't get on in the first round, you are locked out potentially for a decade. So it becomes very high stakes for companies. So if they perceive that they that either initially the rules are going to disfavor them and make it hard for them to win, they'll file pre-award protests. And then if they are not selected, they will are more likely to file post-award protests. And so we've seen a number of the contract vehicles get kind of gummed up over the past few years because there's this sense that if if a company can't get on it, then it will stunt their growth uh, again for like a decade. Right. And I guess CIO SP4 is a current sort of poster child for that in a little bit. All right. On the small business side in particular. Right. I would think. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I mean, and that, that kind of ties into the scorecards uh, growth uh, that, the CSP4 is, uh, has had a number of protests kind of all the way along the way from when it was released as an RFP after it was released, uh, yeah. when they sent out initial eliminations. And, uh, and, and that CSP4 is using a scorecard approach, you know, like many of the other vehicles have. Right. Um, another question I had in, on the trends, like so IDIQs, the use of scorecards, and you mentioned the, you know, the, the fact you get, potentially locked out do you see you know the increasing focus on having on ramps whether like oasis proposes a continuous ability to join the contract i think other vehicles are talking about you know increasing you know the number of on ramps or the time frame for on ramps for companies who weren't on it to submit offers is that you think that will address the protest issue and also is that a business opportunity for you yeah. So yeah, Oasis Plus is a is a good example of of that. It's a it's a it's a scorecard like procurement. You your company's reduced to a number, and it's a, the, in this case it's the number of credits. But you're actually not being compared to other companies. You're just being compared to the a baseline number. And as long as you get enough credits, um, then you're in. But then even if you didn't get in in the first round, the government has promised uh, on ramps on a frequent basis going forward. And so I do think that lessens the uh, likelihood of protests against Oasis Plus because it's not a 10 years or nothing deal. It's, right. oh, maybe I messed up, but I can get on in a year or I can I can get on a couple um, domains right now and then expand my scope over time. Um, that is definitely good business for us because it means it's like a continuing opportunity for companies to as they expand their business operations to get into these contracts. It's the first one we've seen do that, but that, but Oasis was also the trendsetter um, when it was first awarded, even in creating kind of the scorecard approach. So I wouldn't be surprised to see in the next, in the future iterations of contracts for more, more agencies to adopt that approach where it's not now or never it's now, but maybe later if you can't quite get it, right. get on there. Now. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It seems to me you have a, you have a continuous demand built for your services coming out of this as well. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Oasis plus has five, um, it has eight initial domains that they're going to award this year, but they've already planned five more domains beyond that. Um, and then any, and again, any company can expand the number of domains it has plus GSA is encouraging agencies to think about what, what additional domains they may want to add in the future. So it definitely creates kind of a nice steady stream of, of uh, work for us to do. Yeah. Um, I wanted to, you mentioned best in class uh, um, and sort of this effort to reduce, um, we used to call it contract duplication. Um, 
or redundancy is just, you know, but, uh, you know, as there's too many contracts chasing, chasing all the dollars out there and best in class is sort of like the idea of like, you know, this contract is preferred over others. Um, what's been the impact of that um, from the government perspective and also from an industry perspective, um, particularly is there an impact on small businesses or, you know, and whether or not they get on the best in class and where they fit in. Um, do you have any thoughts on that or what have you seen? Yeah, I think, I think the, the you know, every agency is a little bit different. And so some agencies have embraced the notion of government wide best in class contracts. So for example, if you want to do work at the Homeland Security Department, Right now, you pretty much have to be on, uh, and you're in the services business, you pretty much have to be on Oasis. If you're in the IT services business, you have to be on CIOSP3 or VETS2 or STARS or Alliant. Uh, the um, Treasury Department has moved most of its work to the best-in-class vehicles, the Air Force, uh, the Army National Guard. So there are certain agencies where in order to do business with them, you have to be on these best-in-class vehicles. And there are overall more agencies that have over time adopted the approach of going best-in-class. So, for example, the U.S. Agency for International Development over the past few years have dri- has driven a lot of work onto OASIS. Uh, there are other agencies that are, uh, you know, that have uh, resisted the government-wide push. Uh, so like the VA, for example, still has its own vehicle. Uh, the Defense Logistics Agency has its own. Um, and at the end of the day, those vehicles are, when you look at the scope, are still very similar to the government-wide contracts. Like it would be, if you look at the scope of, of DLA jets or Army ITES, it's hard to distinguish why you would even have those vehicles as opposed to just putting that work on GSA Alliant or CIOSP3. Um, so for for companies, that means it depends on what, who their customers are going to be. For some of them, they have to go best in class because their agencies have gone best in class. For others, they can focus on the agency vehicles. And it looks like um, the, the trend of more agencies moving to uh, government-wide best-in-class vehicles has slowed. So it's likely that the agencies that are not already using the government-wide contracts are going to keep using their own contracts unless there's kind of a renewed focus at the White House to drive uh, the decisions of more agencies onto the onto the government-wide contracts. I wonder, I, when you mentioned that, that's slowed. I just wonder if, you know, a factor in there is that there's no uh, administrator for federal procurement policy, no head of OFPP, sort of the bully pulpit for procurement um you know, at OMB, do you think that has something to do with, you know, the slowing, you know, momentum on best in class a little bit from what you're saying? Yeah, I, th- I think that probably there probably is something to that, that you don't have like a champion who's really driving it and meeting with the agencies and convincing them that it's in the best interest of the government overall to push the work to the government wide contracts. It, you know, the a good example is the State Department, which is is currently doing a scorecard procurement for its IT that it's calling Evolve. And uh, Evolve is essentially the same scope as uh, GSA Alliant 2, SCIOSP3. And from a government-wide perspective, you can really question, is this a good use of resources for yes. those contracting officers at the State Department to be spending two years producing this vehicle where they could just be issuing the task orders right now on vehicles that already exist and most likely reaching the same companies that are already on those uh, government-wide contracts, but but there's no one apparently right now at, at above them 
to challenge the State Department or anybody else who takes that approach to say, is this really how you should be spending the government's resources? Right, um, right. That's a great that's a great point. That's a great example. So and Brian, we're up on the break. When we come back, um, we'll use this last segment. You know, I mentioned, uh, you know, I think you agree with me, you know, 2023 is a year of the government wide IDIQ with a lot of recompetes uh, coming down the pike or ongoing currently. I'd like to get your take, quick take on each of them, just a quick couple thoughts about each of them. It'd be almost like a lightning round on government IDIQs. My guest today is Brian Friel. He's a co-founder of BD Squared LLC. I'm Roger Walder, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Walder, and my guest today is Brian Friel. He's co-founder of BD Squared LLC. And um, this segment, uh, I, yeah, we're going to do our lightning round. Uh, you know, Brian talking about uh, some of the key IDIQs that are in play this year. Um, 2023 is the year of the government-wide IDIQ, and there's a number of them. And I'm just going to throw them out there and get your quick thoughts on them. And we'll run down through the one, two, three, four, five that I've identified. And then maybe at the end, if there's any other big procurements you want to mention if we have time, we can do that. But first of all, there's a couple of them that are ongoing and uh, and in evaluation, or or have received proposals. And the first one I want to mention and get your thoughts on is Polaris. Yeah, so Polaris is the small business IT services contract from GSA. It will also have the first uh, woman-owned small business GWAC run by GSA for IT services, an SDVSB component, and a HubZone component. So once it's awarded, it will kind of complete the IT services uh, contract portfolio for GSA. It's a scorecard where you have to be among the top companies on the small business uh, side. It's 100 companies and the the threshold is is fairly high. So there are a lot of companies that will not even be in the running. But 100 companies is not that many when we look at the you know thousands of companies that provide IT services to the government. Uh, but there's it's, it, it fills a very noticeable gap in the market right now where there is no GSA small business IT services contract. And there hasn't been since Alliant 2 Small Business got uh, kind of blown up through the protest process. So I think it'll be a welcome thing for the market to have that gap filled. Yeah, I think it's a critical contract in a sense it does fill out GSA's portfolio approach to the IT services, right? So, you know, they got you know, there are other small business contract vehicles and they've got Alliant and the, uh, you know, unrestricted Alliant 2 and the coming Alliant 3, which we'll talk about in a bit. And then they've got the schedules too. It's all works together as a portfolio. And this is the one area that they're going to fill that. Um, next one is uh, CIO SP4, which, you know, is, has a long you could say a long, strange journey. I don't know. So far, where, where are we in that? And what's going on with it? <laughs> well, this, so so CSP four is the first time that 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 the uh, that the NIH unit that runs that program for all agencies to use is using a scorecard. And um, I would say they probably didn't necessarily talk to GSA enough about the lessons that GSA has learned because the Polaris scorecard was actually pretty solid. It. it wasn't protested too much, whereas the CSP4 contract has gotten protested substantially. It uh, Nonetheless, uh, the new contracting officer, I think, is uh, a pretty uh, competent guy. He's got a plan in place to get it awarded uh, by uh, March of this year. 
the CSP3 contract ends in April. Uh, so that does not leave much uh, wiggle room. The, I think there is a theoretical chance that there could end up being a gap. So we would have a situation where there's there's no players yet because that's still in source selection, and there may not be a CSP4 in place. And so the uh, you know, Alliance 2 is up and running, the STARS contract and uh, vets that you mentioned before that are part of the GSA contract portfolio are there. But um, I think there's a risk here that CSP4 may not be in place uh, unless um, uh, the contracting officer is able to kind of handle all the protests that might come when they make their next uh, elimination round, which could be sometime uh, in the month of January. So do they have, um, are they going to have on-ramps on CSP F4? Yes. And the the plan is uh, the first on-ramp will be in three years. And uh, it's something I've noticed that uh, that the contracting officer has talked up more frequently than I had heard him in the past. And I think it's intentional. So the idea is if you didn't, uh, you know, uh, put together a, a winning score for CSP4 this time, you probably will be able to do it next time. <laughs> Lessons learned. Right. And so you've just got a few years to wait before you can get on. Right. And I guess, you know, and then maybe that three years is a long time, but we'll see how that balances out. Um, okay. So the next one is, and you talked about it a fair amount in the last segment, but Oasis Plus is the, uh, you know, recompete or follow on for Oasis. Yeah, and the, and Oasis is was really the first government-wide professional services contract outside of the schedules, and it's been you know massively successful. Uh, so so the plus that the GSA has added to the name of Oasis is to retain the brand, which I think was a smart decision because it's a well-respected brand throughout government. But it is also expanding the scope. Um, in particular, there's a new intelligence domain where we, there is no intel, government-wide intelligence services contract. And I think that may bring in some new customers into the um, into the uh, best-in-class uh, portfolio. Um, and then, again, there will be five additional domains beyond that. So I think, at, I think Oasis Plus will have much more work on it than even Oasis does. Also because Oasis Plus is much less restrictive, it's also the first government-wide contract where uh, you're likely to have thousands of companies participating uh, based on the way they've structured the uh, procurement as, as not, uh, you know, just 100 or 200 companies, but any company that can reach a certain threshold. And I actually think that the, the result of that will be that those companies will drive more work to the vehicle and therefore it will, it will be even more successful than Oasis was. Right. And then they do have that enterprise domain, I think for that is, has a higher threshold. Is that right? Yeah, the, on the unrestricted side, there's um, uh, the enterprise solutions domain. You have to get 45 out of the 50 credits, so you have very little room to, for for mistakes. And the the criteria that they use to for you to get to 45 is intense. For example, you need four 50 million dollar a year contracts. Uh, at the end of the day, there might be 15 to 20 companies, maybe, that can get onto that contract. And so, but that contract will host major. Uh, major procurement, you know, billion dollar task orders, $250 million task orders kind of thing. Yeah. So the next one um, is Alliant 3, um, which, and I have to say, Oasis had put out their first uh, draft uh, RFP. Alliant also put out a draft, portions of an RFP just recently with comments due back at the end of December and the beginning of January, respectively. So tell us about Alliant 3. 
Yeah, and so uh, Line 3 will replace Alliant 2, which is the government-wide unrestricted IT services contract that GSA runs. And in the absence of a small business uh, sidecar like Alliant 2, and you know, we're, we're now Polaris will fill that gap, um, there's been a, just a massive amount of use of Alliant 2. So the contract was set up with a $50 billion ceiling for 10 years, and it's likely to breach that ceiling uh, this year. So GSA added $25 billion to the ceiling to $75 billion, but then even that might not be enough. So they decided to recompete uh, early. So even though the five-year base period ends this year, so the five-year option will extend to 2028, uh, line three will be you know issued after May of this year. And it follows basically the same approach that line two did. It uses a scorecard, but you have to be among the top 60 companies, which again, there's thousands of companies that do uh, IT services work for the government. 60 is a very small number of that total. Right. So, um, and then, um, the last one that I want to mention, and we, it's almost perfect timing. I've got about uh, a minute and a half left or so to talk, uh, quickly NASA soup six, um, NASA had his first industry day back November of, uh, last year. Um, and they're getting ready to kick to move, continue to move forward on the planning and, outreach on this one towards issuing an RFP um, thoughts on this one. Are you tracking this one? Yeah. So, you know, soup is, is a massively successful contract, but it's most well known for the purchases of commodities of software licenses and hardware and that kind of thing. Uh, my, my understanding is that soup six will be the first one that really d- explicitly has a, a segment devoted to services. And uh, I'm really excited about that. First of all, I expect that they'll use a, a scorecard procurement that's my sense of where they'll go uh for it the the current contract ends in may 25 that's that seems like a long time from now but in the procurement world it's tomorrow so yes. i really need to get a evaluation um schema set up and scorecard would be the best way for them to go but i also think it's very exciting because nasa has some really innovative ordering processes i i, I don't know yet if they've thought through how they will apply those ordering processes to services but it could be a very um, rapid approach to uh, procuring services. And so I think for the first time, we'll have services companies paying attention to soup, uh, whereas in the past, it's predominantly been value-added resellers that have gone after soup. All right. That's, I mean, we we succeeded in the lightning round getting through all those procurements. I appreciate it. Thanks, Roger. That was fun. Yeah. So we're closing out the show, Brian. I want to thank my guest, Brian Freire. He is a co-founder of BD Squared LLC. I'm Roger Walder, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.